Section 21 of The Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marsitich, Alexandria, Virginia, July 2010. The Elements of Geology by William Harmon Norton. Chapter 15. The Precambrian Systems. The Earth's Beginnings. The geological record does not tell us of the beginnings of the Earth. The history of the planet, as we have every reason to believe, stretches far back beyond the period of the oldest stratified rocks, and is involved in the history of the solar system, and of the nebula, the cloud of glowing gases or of cosmic dust, from which the sun and planets are believed to have been derived. The Nebular Hypothesis It is possible that the Earth began as a vaporous, shining sphere, formed by the gathering together of the material of a gaseous ring, which had been detached from a cooling and shrinking nebula. Such a vaporous sphere would condense to a liquid, fiery globe, whose surface would become cold and solid, while the interior would long remain intensely hot because of the slow conductivity of the crust. Under these conditions, the primeval atmosphere of the earth must have contained in vapor the water now belonging to the earth's crust and surface. It held also all the oxygen, since locked up in rocks by their oxidation, and all the carbon dioxide, which has been since laid away in limestones, besides that corresponding to the carbon of carbonaceous deposits, such as peat, coal, and petroleum. On this hypothesis, the original atmosphere was dense, dark and noxious, and enormously heavier than the atmosphere at present. The accretion hypothesis. On the other hand, it has been recently suggested that the earth may have grown to its present size by the gradual accretion of meteoric masses. Such cold, stony bodies might have come together at so slow a rate that the heat caused by their impact would not raise sensibly the temperature of the growing planet. Thus the surface of the earth may never have been hot and luminous, but as the loose aggregation of stony masses grew larger and was more and more compressed by its own gravitation, the heat thus generated raised the interior to high temperatures, while from time to time Molten rock was introduced among the loose, cold, meteoric masses of the crust, and outpoured upon the surface. It is supposed that the meteorites of which the earth was built brought to it, as meteorites do now, various gases shut up within their pores. As the heat of the interior increased, these gases transpired to the surface and formed the primitive atmosphere and hydrosphere. 
The atmosphere has therefore grown slowly from the smallest beginnings. Gases emitted from the interior in volcanic eruptions and in other ways have ever added to it and are adding to it now. On the other hand, the atmosphere has constantly suffered loss as it has been robbed of oxygen by the oxidation of rocks in weathering and of carbon dioxide in the making of limestones and carbonaceous deposits. While all hypotheses of the Earth's beginnings are as yet unproved speculations, they serve to bring to mind one of the chief lessons which geology has to teach, that the duration of the Earth in time, like the extension of the universe in space, is vastly beyond the power of the human mind to realize. Beyond the history recorded in the rocks, which stretches back for many million years, lies the long unrecorded history of the beginnings of the planet, and still farther in the abysses of the past are dimly seen the cycles of the evolution of the solar system and of the nebula which gave it birth. We pass now from the dim realm of speculation to the earliest era of the recorded history of the earth, where some certain facts may be observed and some sure inferences from them may be drawn. The Archaean, the oldest known sedimentary strata, wherever they are exposed by uplift and erosion, are found to be involved with a mass of crystalline rocks which possess the same characteristics in all parts of the world. It consists of foliated rocks, gneisses, and schists of various kinds, which have been cut with dikes and other intrusions of molten rock, and have been broken, crumpled, and crushed, and left in interlocking masses, so confused that their true arrangement can usually be made out only with the greatest difficulty, if at all. The condition of this body of crystalline rocks is due to the fact that they have suffered not only from the faultings, foldings, and igneous intrusions of their time, but necessarily also from those of all later geological ages. At present, three leading theories are held as to the origin of these basal crystalline rocks. 1. They are considered by perhaps the majority of the geologists who have studied them most carefully to be igneous rocks, intruded in a molten state among the sedimentary rocks involved with them. In many localities, this relation is proved by the phenomena of contact, but for the most part, the deformations which the rocks have since suffered again and again have been sufficient to destroy such evidence if it ever existed. 2. An older view regards them as profoundly altered sedimentary strata, the most ancient of the earth. 3. According to a third theory, 
they represent portions of the earth's original crust not indeed its original surface but deeper portions uncovered by erosion and afterwards mantled with sedimentary deposits all these theories agree that the present foliated condition of these rocks is due to the intense metamorphism which they have suffered it is to this body of crystalline rocks and the stratified rocks involved with it which form a very small proportion of its mass that the term archaean greek arche beginning is applied by many geologists the algonquian in some regions there rests uncomfortably on the archaean an immense body of stratified rocks thousands and in places even scores of thousands of feet thick known as the algonquian great unconformities divide it into well-defined systems but as only the scantiest traces of fossils appear here and there among its strata it is as yet impossible to correlate the formations of different regions and to give them names of more than local application we will describe the algonquian rocks of two typical areas the grand canyon of the colorado we have already studied a very ancient peneplain whose edge is exposed to view deep on the walls of the colorado canyon the formation of flat-laying sandstone which covers this buried land surface is proved by its fossils to belong to the cambrian the earliest period of the paleozoic era the tiled rocks on whose upturned edges the cambrian sandstone rests are far older for the physical break which separates them from it records a time interval during which they were upheaved to mountainous ridges and worn down to a low plain they are therefore classified as algonquian they comprise two immense series the upper is more than five thousand feet thick and consists of shales and sandstones with some limestones separated from it by an unconformity which does not appear in figure two o seven the lower division seven thousand feet thick consists chiefly of massive reddish sandstones with seven or more sheets of lava interbedded the lowest member is a basal conglomerate composed of pebbles derived from the erosion of the dark crumpled schists beneath schists which are supposed to be archaean as shown in figure two o seven a strong unconformity parts the schists and the algonquian the floor on which the algonquian rests is remarkably even and here again is proved an interval of incalculable length during which an ancient landmass of archaean rocks was base leveled before it received the cover of the sediments of the later age the lake superior region in eastern canada an area of pre-cambrian rocks archaean and algonquian 
estimated at two million square miles, stretches from the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River northward to the confines of the continent, enclosing Hudson Bay in the arms of a gigantic U. This immense area, which we have already studied as the Laurentian Peneplain, extends southward across the Canadian border into northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. The rocks of this area are known to be pre-Cambrian, for the Cambrian strata, wherever found, lie unconformably upon them. The general relations of the formations of that portion of the area which lies about Lake Superior are shown in figure 262. Great unconformities, UU prime, separate the Algonquian both from the Archaean and from the Cambrian, and divide it into three distinct systems, the Lower Huronian, the Upper Huronian, and the Kiwinawan. The Lower and the Upper Huronian consist in the main of old sea muds and sands and limey oozes, now changed to gneisses, schists, marbles, quartzites, slates, and other metamorphic rocks. The Kiwinawan is composed of immense piles of lava, such as those of Iceland, overlain by bedded sandstones. What remains of these rock systems after the denudation of all later geologic ages is enormous. The lower Huronian is more than a mile thick, the upper Huronian more than two miles thick, while the Kiwinawan extends nine miles in thickness. The vast length of Algonquian time is shown by the thickness of its marine deposits and by the cycles of erosion which it includes. In figure 267, the student may read an outline of the history of the Lake Superior region, the deformations which it suffered, their relative severity, the times when they occurred, and the erosion cycles marked by the successive unconformities. Other Precambrian Areas in North America Precambrian rocks are exposed in various parts of the continent, usually by the erosion of mountain ranges in which their strata were infolded. Large areas occur in the maritime provinces of Canada. The core of the Green Mountains of Vermont is Precambrian, and rocks of these systems occur in scattered patches in western Massachusetts. Here belong also the oldest rocks of the highlands of the Hudson and of New Jersey. The Arondack region, an outlier of the Laurentian region, exposes Precambrian rocks which have been metamorphosed and tilted by the intrusion of a great boss of igneous rock out of which the central peaks are carved. The core of the Blue Ridge and probably much of the Piedmont Belt are of this age. In the Black Hills, the eruption of an immense mass of granite has caused or accompanied the upheaval of Precambrian strata and metamorphosed them by heat and pressure into gneisses, schists, 
quartzites and slates. In most of these mountainous regions, the lowest strata are profoundly changed by metamorphism, and they can be assigned to the Precambrian only when they are clearly overlain unconformably by formations proved to be Cambrian by their fossils. In the Belt Mountains of Montana, however, the Cambrian is underlain by Algonquian sediments 12,000 feet thick, and but little altered. Mineral Wealth of the Precambrian Rocks The Precambrian rocks are of very great economic importance because of their extensive metamorphism and the enormous masses of igneous rock which they involve. In many parts of the country, they are the source of supply of granite, gneiss, marble, slate, and other such building materials. Still more valuable are the stores of iron and copper and other metals which they contain. At the present time, the Precambrian region about Lake Superior leads the world in the production of iron ore, its output for 1903 being more than five-sevenths of the entire output of the whole United States, and exceeding that of any foreign country. The ore bodies consist chiefly of the red oxide of iron, hematite, and occur in troughs of the strata, underlain by some impervious rock, a theory held by many refers the ultimate source of the iron to the igneous rocks of the Archaean. When these rocks were upheaved and subjected to weathering, their iron compounds were decomposed. Their iron was leached out and carried away to be lain in the Algonquian water bodies in beds of iron carbonate and other iron compounds. During the later ages, after the Algonquian strata had been uplifted to form part of the continent, a second concentration has taken place. Descending underground waters, charged with oxygen, have decomposed the iron carbonate and deposited the iron, in the form of iron oxide, in troughs of the strata where their downward progress was arrested by impervious floors. The Precambrian rocks of the eastern United States are also rich in iron. In certain districts, as in the highlands of New Jersey, the black oxide of iron, magnetite, is so abundant in beds and disseminated grains that the ordinary surveyor's compass is useless. The Precambrian copper mines of the Lake Superior region are among the richest on the globe. In the igneous rocks, copper, next to iron, is the most common of all the useful metals, and it was especially abundant in the Kiwinawan lavas. After the Kiwinawan was uplifted to form land, percolating waters leached out much of the copper diffused in the lava sheets, and deposited it within steam blebs as amygdules of native copper, in cracks and fissures, and especially as a cement, 
or matrix in the interbedded gravels which form the chief aquifers of the region the famous calumet and hecla mine follows down the dip of the strata to the depth of nearly a mile and works such an ancient conglomerate whose matrix is pure copper the appearance of life sometime during the dim ages preceding the cambrian whether in the archaean or in the algonquian we know not occurred one of the most important events in the history of the earth life appeared for the first time upon the planet geology has no evidence whatever to offer as to whence or how life came all analogies lead us to believe that its appearance must have been sudden its earliest forms are unknown but analogy suggests that as every living creature has developed from a single cell so the earliest organisms upon the globe the germs from which all later life is supposed to have been evolved were tiny unicellular masses of protoplasm resembling the amoeba of today in the simplicity of their structure such lowly forms were destitute of any hard parts and could leave no evidence of their existence in the record of the rocks and of their supposed descendants we find so few traces in the pre-cambrian strata that the first steps in organic evolution must be supplied from such analogies in embryology as the following the fertilized ovum the cell with which each animal begins its life grows and multiplies by cell division and develops into a hollow globe of cells called the blastosphere this stage is succeeded by the stage of the gastrula an ovoid or cup-shaped body with a double wall of cells enclosing a body cavity and with an opening the primitive mouth each of these early embryological stages is represented by living animals the undivided cell by the protozoa, the blastosphere by some rare forms, and the gastrula in the essential structure of the cholenterates, the subkingdom to which the freshwater hydra and the corals belong. All forms of animal life, from the cholenterates to the mammals, follow the same path in their embryological development as far as the gastrula stage, but here their paths widely diverge, those of each sub-kingdom going their own separate ways. We may infer, therefore, that during the Precambrian periods, organic evolution followed the lines thus dimly traced. The earliest one-celled protozoa were probably succeeded by many-celled animals of the type of the blastosphere, and these by gastrula-like organisms. From the gastrula type, the higher subdivisions of animal life probably diverged, as separate branches from a common trunk. Much or all of this vast differentiation 
was accompanied before the opening of the next era, for all the sub-kingdoms are represented in the Cambrian except the vertebrates. Evidences of Pre-Cambrian Life An indirect evidence of life during the Pre-Cambrian periods is found in the abundant and varied fauna of the next period, for, if the theory of evolution is correct, the differentiation of the Cambrian fauna was a long process which might well have required for its accomplishment a large part of pre-Cambrian time. Other indirect evidences are the pre-Cambrian limestones, iron ores, and graphite deposits, since such minerals and rocks have been formed in later times by the help of organisms. If the carbonate of lime of the Algonquian limestones and marbles was extracted from seawater by organisms, as is done at present by corals, mollusks, and other humble animals and plants, the life of those ancient seas must have been abundant. Graphite, a soft black mineral composed of carbon, and used in the manufacture of lead pencils and as a lubricant, occurs widely in the metamorphic pre-Cambrian rocks. It is known to be produced in some cases by the metamorphism of coal, which itself is formed of decomposed vegetal tissues. Seams of graphite may therefore represent accumulations of vegetal matter such as seaweed, while limestone, iron ores, and graphite can be produced by chemical processes, and their presence in the Precambrian makes it only probable and not certain that life existed at that time. Precambrian fossils. Very rarely has any clear trace of an organism been found in the most ancient chapters of the geological record. So many of their leaves have been destroyed, and so far have their pages been defaced, omitting structures whose organic nature has been questioned. There are left to mention a tiny seashell of one of the most lowly types, a decena from the Precambrian rocks of the Colorado Canyon and from the Precambrian rocks of Montana, trails of annelid worms in casts of their burrows in ancient beaches, and fragments of the tests of crustaceans. These diverse forms indicate that before the Algonquian had closed, life was abundant and had widely differentiated we may expect that other forms will be discovered as the rocks are closely searched. Precambrian Geography Our knowledge is far too meager to warrant an attempt to draw the varying outlines of sea and land during the Archaean and Algonquian eras. Precambrian time probably was longer than all later geological time down to the present, as we may infer from the vast thicknesses of its rocks 
and the unconformities which part them. We know that during its long periods, land masses again and again rose from the sea, were worn low, and were submerged and covered with the waste of other lands. But the formations of separated regions cannot be correlated because of the absence of fossils, and nothing more can be made out than the detached chapters of local histories, such as the outline given of the district about Lake Superior. The Precambrian rocks show no evidence of any forces then at work upon the earth except the forces which are at work upon it now. The most ancient sediments known are so like the sediments now being weighed that we may infer that they were formed under conditions essentially similar to those of the present time. There is no proof that the sands of the Precambrian sandstones were swept by any more powerful waves and currents than our offshore sands today, or that the muds of the Precambrian shales settled to the seafloor in less quiet water than such muds settle in at present. The Precambrian lands were, no doubt, worn by wind and weather, beaten by rain, and furrowed by streams as now, and, as now, they fronted the ocean with beaches on which waves dashed and along which tidal currents ran. Perhaps the chief difference between the Precambrian and the present was the absence of life upon the land. So far as we have any knowledge, no forests covered the mountainsides, no verdure carpeted the plains, and no animals lived on the ground or in the air. It is permitted to think of the most ancient lands as deserts of barren rock and rock waste swept by rains and trenched by powerful streams. We may therefore suppose that the processes of their destruction went on more rapidly than at present. End of section 21